So do you know a leader when you see one? Right? Can you look out among a crowd and tell who has the makeup to be a leader? Right? Our tendency is to believe that we can. When Abigail Adams first met George Washington, she wrote to her husband, John, I was struck with George Washington. You prepared me to entertain a favorable opinion of him, but I thought the one half was not told me. Dignity with ease and complacency. The gentleman and soldier look agreeably blended in him. Modesty marks every line of his face. Right, like Abigail, we have a confidence, don't we, that we can know who the next great leader will be. Right, we look at someone and see that she has the right pedigree. She, she went to the right school. Or he has the right stature, the right commanding voice. Or she has the perfect demeanor, carries herself with confidence. Right, when it comes to our leaders, what, what do you look for? What, what impresses you? So over the next several weeks, all the way up to Easter, we will be in the books of First and Second Samuel, focusing on the life of David, right, Israel's great king. But when we turn back to the beginning of First Samuel, we find that there's no king in Israel. And that's what First Samuel narrates for us. The early chapters tell us how Israel moved into monarchy. Right now, as Americans who, who still remember the tyranny of King George, we're, we're a bit weary of monarchs, but monarchy was always part of God's plan for his people. Right in the law of Moses, before the people entered Canaan, it says that when the king takes his throne, he shall be well acquainted with God's law so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God diligently observing all the words of his law and these statutes. You see, the role of Israel's king was to help the people maintain their distinctiveness as the people of God. But when the elders of Israel approach Samuel, and this is recorded in chapter 8, when the elders of Israel approach Samuel demanding a king, this is what they say. They say, there will be a king over us so that we may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, Israel doesn't want to be distinct. They want to blend in. They want to have what the nations have. And so amazingly, frighteningly, God obliges. God gives them Saul. Right, he was a man, we're told, was more handsome, more physically impressive than all the men in Israel. Right, Saul was a reflection of what the people desired. But what we learn is that Saul had more of an ear for the people's voice than the voice of God. And so at the end of chapter 15, right before our passage this morning, after failing to carry out God's command, Samuel comes with the news that for having rejected God's voice, God has rejected him as king over Israel. And so our passage this morning is about the search for another king. 
passages. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. It's interesting that Samuel takes no joy in delivering God's judgment against Saul. Right? It's common that whenever a public figure is embroiled in scandal and eventually falls in disgrace, there are many who relish the moment. Let's be honest, haven't we all taken secret pleasure in seeing those on the other side of our aisle fall? But you see, Samuel takes no pleasure in Saul's sin because we are never to rejoice over or celebrate someone's disobedience. All sin, whether our own or not, is an occasion for mourning. As Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Samuel is grieving because he knows Israel will feel Saul's sin. 
but he's also grieving because he cannot yet see what God is going to do. Right? In other words, Samuel has no clue how God will redeem this situation. Right? And haven't we too been in those moments? Right? Those situations when a, when a leader falls, a disaster strikes, and we see nothing but the broken pieces. You see, Samuel cannot see past Saul. And so I wonder, what is it that you cannot see beyond this morning? Right? What failure has, has shattered your hope? Right? What bit of darkness, what bit of suffering has, has darkened your world? Right? What past sin continues to gnaw at you? Right? That's where Samuel is at this moment. He's, he's stuck and burdened by the reality that he has no answer. Right? He has no power to fix what Saul has done. And so notice how God answers Samuel. Right? He orders him to fill his horn with oil and make his way to Jesse in Bethlehem. Why? Look at the end of verse 1. God says, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And here's what's interesting. The, the word there translated as provided is a form of the, of the Hebrew word ordinarily meaning to see. God is telling Samuel that he can see what Samuel in his darkness and grief cannot see. Your ability to make sense of the suffering and grief in your life is limited. Because we do not see things from God's eternal and all-knowing perspective. But our tendency is to say that if we can't see a reason well, we conclude there isn't one. Friends, be, be patient and humble about determining why things are the way that they are in your life. Right? Outward appearances, as we'll see in just a bit, aren't conclusive. Imagine being an eyewitness to Jesus dying on the cross. What conclusion would you have been quick to draw? I think what was happening is that Samuel was confusing the end of, of Saul's reign with the end of the reign of God. He thought if, if Saul wasn't on the throne, then no one was. And what we need to remember is that whatever comes, God still reigns. That there's a king who Paul tells us is seated at God's right hand. And he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. God still reigns. And notice, all God asks of Samuel is trust. Right? He tells him to get up and get going. But then we notice that the problem for Samuel here isn't his grief. But the fact that he started to fear the one that God rejected. Isn't that interesting? He's afraid of what Saul might do to him. See, Samuel is a bit like Saul here. 
his fear is misplaced. Saul worried about disappointing the people. Samuel now worries about what Saul might do. Jesus tells us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you see the irony in all this? Samuel just told Saul he was rejected as king because he rejected God's command. And now Samuel finds himself on the verge of rejecting God's command. Do you see what the fear of man always leads to? Right When the souls of this world are bigger to us than God... So friends, are there clear commands of God that you are choosing to reject to be spared the rejection of certain people? Right? And if so, notice how God mercifully deals with Samuel's fear. Right? He provided Samuel with safety by telling him to take this heifer that he may perform a sacrifice when he arrives. God isn't being deceptive. See, God helps us in the weakness of our fears. He sympathizes with our fears, but also at the same time, he calls for our boldness in his word. And we see that when Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, he isn't greeted with great fanfare. It's not exactly clear why the elders are afraid. Maybe it has something to do with word getting around that he just rebuked the king. And if you can rebuke the king, then no one's off limits. But whatever the reason, Samuel gets things going by slaughtering the heifer, preparing Jesse's sons for the feast. All right, and it's as they're preparing for this feast that Samuel looks on Eliab, maybe Jesse's oldest son, and he thinks, surely... Here is the Lord's anointed. Right, it's always nice when God's work doesn't take too long, isn't it? But do you see the problem? Samuel passes a judgment based on Eliab's physical appearance. Right? Samuel is looking for another Saul. Right, and it's right then that the Lord reveals the problem that led to Saul. Look at what God says in verse 7. It's really the primary verse, right? Everything is kind of commentary around this verse. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What God is telling Samuel is that the people of Israel will continue to suffer bad leadership as long as they allow their eyes to determine what's valuable and what's impressive. So friends, what's valuable and impressive to your eyes? How much of our time and money and energy is spent chasing a certain image? What are we willing to do? What are we willing to sacrifice 
to keep up appearances. Right? Our world only knows how to worship outward appearances. Like Samuel, we are quick to make our judgments based on immediately what enters our field of vision. But what about God's judgment? Right? Will it be based on the image that we've been able to cultivate? Right? What the Bible reveals is that there will be a day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That God will see and reveal everything that we have tried to cover up and hide. And that is why none of us will be able, be able to hold up against that judgment. Apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be clear. A Christian is not someone who on their own can withstand the scrutiny of God. The secrets of all of our hearts will never commend us to God. Their only power is to condemn. And that is why a Christian is someone with a broken and contrite heart who takes shelter in Jesus through faith. Please do not hide in outward appearances. Hide in the righteousness of Christ. And that is the only safe place for us to be. But notice, the, the logic of our passage is that David's heart somehow passes God's judgment. His heart, not his ruddiness, not his beautiful eyes, met God's approval. So does that mean David, unlike all of us, unlike all other people, had a perfect heart? Well, as we, work, as we work through the story of David, we'll see that that's, that's not the case. We'll see the sin that was in David's heart. And so if David doesn't have a perfect, sinless heart, how is his heart different? Right? What's commendable about David's heart? Our passage this morning, the verses that we read, doesn't, they don't tell us. But we do get a glimpse of David's heart when he overhears Goliath mock the Israelites. And we'll cover this passage in detail more next week. But if, if you just kind of remember the gist of the story, you'll remember that David was charged by his father to bring food to his brothers when they were all in camp to do battle against the Philistines. But no one in Israel's army was too eager to fight because, well, you remember they were all intimidated by Goliath, that Philistine who stood about nine feet tall. And Goliath would come out each day taunting and mocking the Israelites, hoping that someone would step up and fight him. And it's while David is on the front lines delivering food to his brothers that he hears Goliath. And it's then that we hear from David for the very first time. And when he hears Goliath's insults, he turns to the men around him and says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, no one else in the entire army was concerned that their God was being derided. 
In other words, David was the only man standing there who valued, who valued the honor of God's name and reputation before his own personal safety. Right? Later, Jesus will ask, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What does it profit to avoid a Goliath but lose your soul? Friends, your physical appearance may matter a whole lot to some. Right? It's how our world determines what's beautiful. But what's valuable and beautiful to God is an imperfect heart that is taken up with him. Right? It's a heart that seeks to know what pleases God. A heart that seeks to reject what offends God. A heart that counts God more precious than life itself. And sure, like we see with Jesse failing to call for his youngest son when Samuel arrived, the world may pass you over. Right? The world, those around you, those in your school, they may not make much of a heart that's set on God. But friends, why do we care what a blind world claims to see? It's the pure in heart, Jesus tells us, who will see God. And though Jesse failed to call for his son, God did not pass him over. God saw David when no one else did. And so when David arrives fresh from the fields, how do you think he looked? Well, how do you look after a hard day's work in the fields? All right, unwashed, probably still smelling of sheep, God sees his man and tells Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So not only is David chosen, but he's empowered. We're told that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And what all this means is that David has been, as one commentator says, set apart. He's been set apart as the blessed royal figure of the people of God. And as that royal figure, David was to serve. He was to represent in his life and conduct God's will and God's rule to the people. His life was to be a model of godliness and obedience and love. He was to do battle against all of God's enemies, even at the cost of his own life. But we know that David's anointing was a foreshadowing of the anointing of one of his descendants who would come as that perfect royal figure. You see, when Jesus, the son of David, was baptized by his cousin John, we're told that the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. This is my anointed with whom I am well pleased. Jesus never impressed anyone with his physical stature. Right? He never drew crowds with clever sayings or with a carefully crafted persona. 
It was his gentle and humble heart. It was the purity of his love, his obedience to the Father that drew weary men and women to him. He was attractive because he offered to lift the burdens that none of us can bear, that all of us are tired of carrying. Remember, earlier Saul was rejected for leading the people astray. And so David was to lead his people into the service of the living God. But David could not do what ultimately needed to be done. He could perhaps die for his people, but his death could never cleanse the people. But Jesus, as the beloved son, whose heart was always perfect, could offer himself for our cleansing. We're told in a verse in Hebrews that Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. See, Jesus came not only to save us from the penalty of our sin, but he came and died and rose, that we may set our hearts on the living God. Right? Because of Jesus, we are, we are free from being slaves to things that are only going to pass away. Right? We are freed from chasing after an outward appearance that is nothing before God. Right? Jesus washes away all those things that we think will make us right and acceptable and beautiful before other people. He washes away the sin that we've all covered ourselves in. He washes it all away in his blood. He clothes us with his royal robes. He sends his spirit upon us that we may love and serve and pursue the things that are valuable and impressive and beautiful to God. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are not finished, but you are a new creation. And when the Father looks at you in Christ, he says, there is my son, my daughter, and I am pleased. You are clean. You are holy. You are set apart. And what that means is that you no longer judge yourself according to the flesh. You no longer judge yourself by outward appearances. What counts is that our faith and our Savior is revealed through a life of love. Right? The spirit that came to rest on Jesus now rests on us, his church, for that reason. Right? That we may reflect to a world that is so consumed with outward appearances that we may be able to reflect the beauty, the holiness, and the love of the living God. Let's pray.
Lord God, we do ask that in a fresh and powerful way that your spirit would rush upon us now, that you would renew us, that you would transform us, that you would help us to lay aside all of the, the sin, all of our attempts to look beautiful and pleasing in this world. And that by your spirit, we may reflect what is true and good and beautiful about you. All to the praise of your great and glorious grace. Amen.